Last week, uh, we began a four-week series that will take us all the way through the Advent season, and we've titled this short series, One Story, One Savior, because the aim of this series is to highlight how the entire Bible, all 66 books of it, is actually one unified story that points us to one glorious Savior, Jesus So despite what your first grade Sunday school teacher told you back in the day, the the Bible is not primarily a rule book. It's not primarily a roadmap of how to live our lives. It's not primarily or merely a collection of of teachings and, and poetry and histories. It is a story. The Bible you hold in your hands is a story told in four scenes or or four acts that all center around the holy triune creator God of the universe. It's a story about God that points us to to the son of God. And so last week, Pastor Ronnie walked us through act one of this story, creation, We were reminded how that in six days, God, the Father and Spirit and Son created all things by the word of his power. Literally, we we, we saw how he spoke everything that exists into existence. He created everything out of nothing, land and seas and, and clouds and trees and birds and rhinoceroses. You thought I was going to say bees. Bees, I didn't. I just, that's my... I threw you off. The crowning joy, however, of all of God's creation, the pinnacle creature was us, humankind. The first man and woman, Adam and Eve, were created by God to bear God's image on the earth, meaning they were to be a reflection of God's beauty and creativity and authority, and they they were to be fruitful, they were to multiply They were to have children and and, and increase God's image bearers on the earth. And they were created to live in wholeness and fullness and goodness and glory in relationship with God in the idyllic garden paradise called Eden. And they were to rule and care for and steward the animals and plants that God has made. As we saw last week, everything that God made was theirs to enjoy and to steward everything except one thing just one for God said in chapter 2 verse 16 you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die now God did not owe, nor did he give Adam and Eve an explanation as to why they could not eat from this tree or, or, or why he put this tree in the garden to begin with. He didn't give an explanation. He didn't owe one. I'm speculating here, but it could have been that God placed this off-limits tree in the garden to serve as a reminder to Adam and Eve that though he had placed them in charge over all of God's creation, There was but one thing that was only reserved for God, that only God could touch. It was to remind them that they, in fact, were not God. There was something reserved for God alone. Another reason why God might have placed this tree in the midst of the garden is because he wanted to establish an ever-present reminder that humanity's truest and deepest 
Joy would always be found in a posture of trust and obedience and submission to him. After all, God is wondrously good and and we saw that everything he makes is wonderfully good and, and everything he commands is good and when we obey him, hear me, when we obey our God, the result is the good life. It is human flourishing. Uh, just imagine, as, as a brief aside, what our lives might look like if we were only convinced that total obedience to God meant total happiness for us. We would, I presume, we would devour Scripture. We would clamor to follow every last word if we truly believed that the utmost of obedience leads to the utmost of joy. Act one of the biblical story closed with Adam and Eve together in the garden. The word says that they were unashamedly naked because shame doesn't exist. Plus, Who cares about clothes when you're in the presence of the one who breathes galaxies into existence, right? Act 1 closes with Adam and Eve having unrestricted access to God. And except for one tree, unrestricted access uh, and enjoyment of all God's creation. But you see it on your bulletins. Today we're going to be talking about the fall. And that access, that flourishing, that joy tragically comes to a screeching halt as we enter Act 2 of the biblical story. And so if you would, uh, have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to take a leap and read the, uh, the entire chapter. I timed it out. It takes me about three and a half minutes. Let's read starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? 
the woman said, the serpent deceived me and, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, well, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we always want to confess that we believe that this word is your word. Inspired by your Holy Spirit, we believe that what we've just read, uh, in hearing it, God, we are hearing from you. I pray that you would take the truths therein, God, and shape our hearts, conform us to the likeness of Christ. Use me, God, to uh, to help my brothers and sisters in this endeavor, and uh, sanctify, edify us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me take a drink after that reading. If we had started meeting on Friday night, we could have read all the way through Malachi, like the bulletin says, right? Genesis 3 through Malachi, what a gap of time that the fall, this act two of the fall kind of covers. Well, as many of you know, um, a couple weeks ago, my wife Lindsay fell in our bathroom and she broke her hand right around the pinky finger and... uh, well, first of all, thank you for all of you who have just so generously provided meals for us. It's been such a blessing. I can't even tell you thank you, especially now as she recovers from re- reconstructive surgery that she had uh, on, on Wednesday. So thank you for your help with that. But, but my point is that walking through uh, this, this issue, this, this injury with Lindsay, has reminded me of just how complex and interconnected all the parts of the human body are. I mean, when one little, seemingly insignificant bone is out of place, it affects everything. Literally, the whole body groans in response. And if we would have kept reading 
from Genesis 3 all the way through Malachi, through the Pentateuch and the prophets and poetry and wisdom literature, all the way through the Old Testament, if we would have read all the way through, we would see something very similar with the whole of creation. And what I mean by that is this. We would see that just like the aches and the pains that course through the whole body because of one seemingly insignificant broken bone, the whole of creation aches and groans in response to the broken relationship that occurred in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve and God. We would see that there was a ripple effect created when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and how one little seemingly insignificant bite of fruit opened the doorway to death and disease and destruction. If we were to keep reading, we would see that in the first four chapters of the Bible, the first murder is occurred. In chapter in six chapters in that God has to he floods the earth because the wickedness of man becomes so great it says that their every intention and thought was only evil continually. By the end of the book of Judges, it's more of the same. Everyone is doing not according to what God thinks is right, but everyone is doing as what is right in their own eyes each one having turned his own way. In the Psalms, David laments that all of humanity has turned aside. They've become corrupt. There is no one on the face of the earth who does good, not one, he writes. Because even the good that we do post-fall is stained with self-interest and pride. All of this disorder points back to one seemingly insignificant event in the garden. And creation still groans today, does it not? I mean, turn on your TV, scroll through your, your news feed on your phone, cancer and war and opiate addiction and mass shootings and wildfires and hurricanes and human trafficking and abortion. Creation groans still under the effect of the fall. I mean, we could do a whole series on just the effects of the fall, on just the suffering that ensues. We could do a whole series on the theology of the fall, examining what happened that day as humankind became totally depraved. How every part of every person, body, mind, and soul, has been bent and marred by sin. Which explains why Jesus teaches in John 6 that none of us can come to him unless the Father draws us. We're so inwardly broken and bent we desire one thing, our own glory, our own pleasure. The fall, as you can tell, is a huge topic. It's much too big for one sermon. And so here's what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time uh, this morning. I'd like us to stay in Genesis 3 
and draw out three observations from the text about the fall, pertaining to the fall. So if you're a note taker, point number one, the first observation we're going to look at is the root of the fall. This text makes that known. Number two, we're going to look at the result of the fall. Again, this text makes that known. And hallelujah, number three, we're going to look, for the re- look at the remedy for the fall. Because this text makes that known. So in looking at these three things, for the remainder of our time, my prayer is that we would walk away with a bit more clarity. That though you and I were not physically present in the garden, the fall is as much our doing as it is Adam and Eve's. Adam was our federal head. He was our fitting representative in the garden. It's just arrogance to think that we would have done anything differently if we were in his shoes. Amen. And though you and I still suffer the consequences of this fall, what I hope we walk away with a bit more clarity about is is that even, man, even the worst of our suffering by God's grace is not as bad as it could be or even should be. And the good news that I hope we walk away with today, because there's good news, okay? It's a somber topic, but there's good news. And I pray that we would come to see that though our sin is far worse than we might have imagined, we are all of us far more loved in Christ than we might have hoped. Amen? And so let's look at number one. Point number one, the root of the fall. Just look at your Bibles. Look at how things transpire in the first six verses. Adam and Eve are tending the garden. They're tending to to God's majestic creation. They're enjoying perfect fellowship with him and the beauty of paradise. And along comes a talking snake, which I get is really weird. It's really weird. Weird, snakes don't normally speak. We believe that here at Substance Church. But the writer here, whether it was Moses or somebody writing on behalf of Moses, we don't know, but the the writer here betrays no interest in where this serpent might have come from or how this serpent learned to speak. But it's not until much later in the biblical story that we learn that Satan, that the devil is the animating spirit who is speaking through this snake. In fact, this same serpent reappears at the end of the biblical story in the book of Revelation. But look closely at what the serpent says to Eve in verse 1. He asks her, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now pause there. Just a moment ago we read what God actually said from chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. God says that they can eat from any tree in the garden they want except one. So do you see what the devil is doing here? He is completely misrepresenting God's words. He is twisting God's words to say something that God never said. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The whisper of the serpent is just master manipulation at its finest. He knows scripture, the devil does. 
He even acknowledges the reality of God. He tempts Jesus later on in the wilderness by twisting scripture to say things that God never intended them to say, just like he's tempting Eve right now. Now, of course, Jesus called the devil's bluff in the wilderness, and fortunately, Eve calls the devil's bluff. She doesn't know it's the devil, thinks it's a snake. She remembers God's words clearly enough to call Satan's bluff in verses 2 and 3. But brothers and sisters, there is a whole world of people out there and even some of us in here who do not know the word well enough to discern between the voice of God and the voice of the serpent. Some of us don't even blink when we're flipping through the channels and and preacher man claims to be speaking the truth of God when in reality he's echoing the lies of Satan. I think it should tell us something that the devil doesn't masquerade as an atheist. He doesn't. It could be that our greatest local threat, despite what many of us think, isn't actually the College of Worcester with their post-Christian worldview, it could be that the Christians and pastors and priests who misrepresent God's word so subtly that we can't detect it, that's the master enemy right there. Rather, the master enemy is using them as a mouthpiece. But Eve detects it. She tells the serpent in verses 2 and 3, nope. Nope, nope, nope. God said we may eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except for one. And if we eat from that one tree, we will surely die. Now, for any of us who might be thinking that's a pretty harsh punishment for merely eating a piece of fruit, zoom out with me for a second. Zoom out. Let's get out of this immediate scene and zoom out. Remember with me what's been going on. The all-knowing, all-powerful, all-glorious, holy creator God of the universe has by the word of his mouth formed everything and everyone. Not because he needed to, but because he wanted to. He did not form Adam and Eve because he needed to. He was already complete within his triune self, Father, Son, and Spirit. He formed Adam and Eve because he wanted to share himself with them. He gave them himself. He gave them his creation. He gave them paradise to steward and to enjoy. And he said, all of it is yours Not because you've earned it, not because you've deserved it, not because you asked for it, but because I simply wanted to give it to you. All I ask in return is that you refrain from eating from this one tree. When you've been given so much and asked so little, And they couldn't even do that. Adam and Eve couldn't even honor this one rule after all God had given them. When we start to zoom back in now, doesn't it seem a little bit more, doesn't death seem a little bit more fitting? For cosmic treason, as this, as R.C. Sproul puts it. But the serpent said to the woman in verse 4, You will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Do we hear, it? Do we, do we hear what the serpent is saying? Decode with me. God is a liar. He cannot be trusted. You will not die if you disobey. In fact, you'll experience the good life. You'll become wise. You'll see the truth. You'll see the truth that he doesn't want you to see. In fact, you'll taste the goodness that he has been withholding from you. If we could summarize what the serpent is saying in this second temptation to Eve, it is this. God is not good. God is not trustworthy. And Eve believed these words. And she ate. And Adam believed these words. And he ate. And what I want us to see this morning, by God's grace, is that every time you and I act out in sin, it is because we in that moment are believing these words. That God is not good. And he is not trustworthy. The root of the fall is unbelief. Or to put it another way, the root of the fall and of all sin is the belief that God is not good, nor is he trustworthy. Why else do we habitually gossip about one another even though God commands us not to in James 4? We don't believe that it's actually for our flourishing and our good not to gossip. We don't believe in God's good promise. Why else do we repeatedly go back to pornography again and again and again even though God explicitly commands us not to in 1 Corinthians 6? Because in that moment, we believe that there's something better than what God has promised us. We don't believe, in fact, that he is the most good thing that we could have in that moment. Our actions say it. Why else do we constantly lay up earthly treasures for ourselves? with bigger and bigger houses and faster and faster cars and shinier and shinier iPhones, even though God commands us not to in Luke chapter 12. What a good one to reflect on as we enter the Christmas season. Because in that moment, as we're gobbling up all the material treasures we possibly can, we simply don't believe that God is better. We believe the serpent. We believe that God is somehow has designed these rules to keep us from pleasure rather than giving us all pleasure. 
we sin because we lose sight of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 16:11 that God and God alone makes known to us the paths of life, the true path of life. In God's presence, that's where there's fullness of joy. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, that God's people would actually believe that he is this good. And that his rules and decrees and statutes are intended to maximize our joy and not minimize it. When you and I are tempted to drink too much or eat too much or gossip again or sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend, preach to yourself. Psalm 16, 11. It's in the presence of God where there's fullness of joy. It's at God's right hand where pleasures are forevermore. Preach to yourself, Romans 8, 32, that if God, demonstrating his love through the sacrifice of his son, if he's willing to go that far, how much more will he give us all good things that will fulfill us? Number two, the result of the fall. These two points... uh, Remaining will be, will be quicker. Number two, the result of the fall. Immediately after Adam and Eve disobey God, we see in verse 7 that their eyes are opened and they run to cover their nakedness. It's interesting because they've always been naked. But now they feel naked. They feel exposed. Where once they were unashamed, now they feel shamed. But why? What has changed? Imagine with me that every human being possesses a giant portable spotlight. Okay, imagine. This is an illustration. Imagine that every human being has with them a giant portable spotlight. Okay, And these portable spotlights are always on and they are always automatically shining on the thing or the person we most love. The thing or the person that has center stage, if you will, of our hearts. The moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God, their spotlights which up until this moment had always been aimed at God, were turned around, directly inward facing, shining on themselves. In their decision to disobey God, they essentially made themselves the main character of the show. They placed themselves at the center stage of their own hearts. They became the object of their worship and their eyes were opened just as the serpent said, but not in a good way. The spotlight that was just beaming right down on them was too much to bear and they were instantaneously racked with insecurity. Just like we would feel standing under the stage lights in front of a million people, they became, in the blink of an eye, hyper-conscious and hyper-critical of even their own bodies. Hyper-aware of every perceived flaw. 
And because we still live under the effect of the sin, I, I know you know what I'm talking about, this hyper-awareness that we are inadequate. It's that feeling you get, you know, imagine being up on the stage under the lights and you just, you know, making sure to wear the vertical stripes, right, <laughs> trying to, right? And so what do they do? They conceal themselves. They hide themselves. The result of the fall is isolation from ourselves, from others, and from God. Just look at how they respond in verses 12 and 13. God comes to confront them about their sin. What do they do? They deflect. They blame shift. Adam blames Eve for his actions. Eve blames the serpent for her actions. They can't even be honest with themselves. They can't own up to their sin. They conceal it from themselves, refusing to look at it, refusing to address it, refusing to bring it into the light. In what ways is this you and I? What, what is the area of your life and mine that one particular sin pattern that we absolutely refuse to bring into the light. We refuse to acknowledge it. We, we refuse to accept responsibility for it. It doesn't matter what the sin is. There's a worse sin. It's denying that sin. When we read passages like this in Genesis 3, we ought to ask the Holy Spirit, bring to mind the sins that I need to take ownership of. Because when I belittle my sin or ignore my sin, I belittle the Savior. I ignore the Savior as a result. The result of the fall is isolation from ourselves, but also from others. Look, Adam and Eve, they sew fig leaves together to cover up what they are most ashamed of. We do the same thing, of course, not literally. How many of us have been part of a congregation of believers for years and years and years, and, and, and maybe we attend community group faithfully every single week, but, but, but we, we rarely think of this, that it is entirely possible to be physically present and yet spiritually isolated. Sewing our leaves together to make sure that the people around us do not see these certain parts of me. We are to do battle against the temptation to isolate from one another. And so, you know, a question of application is, do you have someone in your life, preferably a man or a woman in your very CG, your community group, do you have someone with whom you are creating a culture of confession? A regular rhythm, a regular pattern of taking the leaves off that you're wanting to keep back up and saying, look, here is all of me. I'm going to bring all of me into the light so that you know me and you can walk with me into the healing of Jesus. Do you have an individual who you are confessing sin to regularly? The tendency is to not have this, and it's the tendency of isolation. 
The result of the fall is isolation from ourselves and from others, but also from God. It's because of fear, Adam claims, in verse 10, that he and Eve were hiding amongst the trees. But if we look at the posture of their fear, it's not the kind of fear that we see in Isaiah 6, where the prophet Isaiah comes face to face with the presence of the holy God, and he is just emptied, and he cries out, woe is me. For before you, a holy God, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Dudes, Isaiah was arguably the most righteous man in Israel, and he is drained in front of the Lord with fear and trembling, but it's a repentant fear. We don't see that in Adam and Eve. We don't see that here. In Adam's fear, in Eve's fear, they, again, we've already covered it, they deflect. They blame shift. They don't confess their sin. They don't take ownership of their disobedience. They make excuses and exceptions. Because when the spotlight is shining here, when our idol, when our biggest idol is ourselves, it's only a matter of time. We've already excluded, we've isolated ourselves from ourselves in denial. We've isolated ourselves from others by not confessing and, and letting people see. And we're isolating ourselves now from God. When our biggest idol is ourselves, we ultimately won't let him get in. The kind of fear, righteous fear that Isaiah demonstrates in Isaiah 6 is the kind of fear that God honors. The kind of fear that, that leads us to repentance and restoration. It's the kind of fear that, I mean, it's one of my favorite verses in, in all of the New Testament. Of just the, the first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's those who, who know they have no boast. They are spiritually bankrupt, and they come before the Lord with this fear and trembling and say, Yes, I have done this. I own it. Please heal me. Number three in closing. It's kind of a somber passage today. Number three, the remedy for the fall. So God finds them in the garden, Adam and Eve. He curses the snake that wicked serpent that will be done away with forever, hallelujah. He curses him in 14. He lists the consequences for Adam and Eve's sin in verses 16 through 19. He then banishes them from Eden <clears throat> in verses 22 and 24, which was an act of mercy. Had the holy God enabled them to linger around much longer, they would have burned up in all of their iniquity. He drives them out into the wilderness. 
He stations a cohort of angels with a flaming sword in front of the tree of life to keep Adam and Eve from eating its fruit. I mean, goodness gracious, if they went and they, and they ate and they you know, restored this everlasting life in a state of spiritual death, how, how horrid would that story end? And so it's a mercy that God exiles them. After all, these are the due wages for our sin. Banishment from God who is the source of life. This is a tremendous opportunity to say sin is serious. If you are here and you have never acknowledged Jesus as the only way, the only name by heaven, under heaven, by which we can be saved and exonerated of our crimes, if you've never acknowledged him, you stand under, you sit under the condemnation and wrath of God where you, where you currently are. It is a serious, serious thing. Many of you are probably saying, well, I, th- I thought... Point number three was the remedy. (laughs) It is. Before Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, look at verse 21. We see God sacrifice an animal in order to cover their physical nakedness. But do you know what that foreshadows? God sacrificing the lamb in order to cover man's spiritual nakedness. What a mercy we see here in verse 21. And then, of course, in verse 15. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, this promised offspring, shall bruise your head. That's a fatal blow right there. Stomp on your head, though you shall bruise his heel By promising an offspring that would destroy the serpent, God here promises that the groans of creation would one day be silenced and the effects of the fall would be one day reversed. That promise and the foreshadowing of the animal that sacrificed for the garments, these all point from one story to one Savior. Next week, we're going to get the opportunity to really dive into Act 3, the redemption. But the good news ahead of time is that this promised offspring, Jesus, did come. We celebrate his coming in the Advent season, am I right? Born a baby, lived the life that we did not, perfect and sinless as the second Adam. And instead of being treated like the king that he was, he took upon himself all of our guilt and shame and sin. And he died on the cross in our place. And he rose to life. And he calls us to come to him to accept the gift of righteousness that he freely gives. All we have to simply do is believe that he has accomplished everything needed for our salvation. And it is awarded to us. And though we still live with the effects of the fall, 
And though my kids still get sick and pinky bones are still broken, the greater groaning that we see and feel and get a sense of in creation, church, it has been reversed on the cross and it is being reversed when Jesus returns. Amen? Let's pray.